Very good. Y'all are friendly. I'd like to continue this morning in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We're getting close to the end. Actually, I think I have one more message from Matthew 5 before we proceed on to Matthew 6. In his book, The Gospel of Identity, Michael Card, the singer-songwriter, had this to say. Jesus redefines the new righteousness by redefining sin itself. Beyond the concrete act, sin begins with the intention of the heart. Our Lord Jesus said this in Matthew 15, For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. Out of the heart. Have you ever wondered why some people seem to be so predisposed to bitterness, vengeful thoughts, vengeful acts, getting revenge? Well, maybe it's because they're miserable. Maybe it's because they wallow in their perceived slights, the wrongs that have been done to them, and they plot revenge as they think and as they wallow. But did you ever think about or realize that revenge is actually sweet? Actually feels good to get revenge. It feels good to get even, and it feels even better to get a little more than even. So if you think about that, it explains a lot, doesn't it, about this world and the way people respond in this world. Because it feels good to get revenge. Good feeling. Wanting to learn more, there's a man named David Chester of the Virginia Commonwealth University and Nathan DeWall of the University of Kentucky. They started studying revenge together. And they discovered that a person who is insulted or socially rejected feels an emotional pain. The area in the brain, and it's a cortex of the brain, it's kind of the top center of the brain, Uh, they discovered that that area of the brain uh, is associated with pain. And it becomes most active in participants who react with an aggressive response after feeling rejected. So then in a little follow-up study, these men, Mr. Chester was surprised to find that emotional pain was intricately yoked with pleasure. In other words, while rejection initially feels painful, it can quickly be masked by pleasure when presented with the opportunity to get revenge. It even activates the brain's known reward circuit called the nucleus accumbens, right kind of in the center of the brain. People who are provoked, they behave aggressively precisely because it's a rewarding experience. Revenge really can be sweet. It's kind of like a buzz that a person gets. from getting When they run down the road, they get that energy and they get a buzz off of that. Or the release of endorphins uh, in the brain. Revenge can be sweet. You know what? Actually, there's a lot of sins that initially feel good when first acted out. 
but then the pain comes afterwards. <clears throat> so ask yourself, what would Jesus do? When someone treats you wrong, how do you respond? Do you react in kind, treating evil with evil, tasting that sweet revenge? I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but probably most of us can relate to that and understand that initially, in our past lives at least, when we took revenge, it did kind of feel good inside. Something just kind of felt good about that. Or do you stand there and take whatever abuse is given to you? What is the proper way to respond to evil? In his Sermon on the Mount here, Jesus had much to say regarding the righteousness of the kingdom. He taught by contrasting it with the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. He noted how that the law had often been interpreted, how it, was, how it had often been interpreted and applied, but then he went on and he declared what he expected of his disciples and what he expects of us today as his disciples. So here in Matthew 5, as we've been doing the last number of uh, times that I've spoke, we've been looking at these different uh, contrasts that Jesus made. First, we looked at murder and anger. Then we looked at adultery. Then we looked at divorce. Last time, we looked at swearing of oaths. And in this lesson today, uh, we're going to look at what Jesus taught concerning vengeance. As I share a sermon that I've entitled, Vengeance or Virtue? Matthew chapter 5 verses 38 through 42, and if you would please, those who can, I would ask you to stand as we read God's Word. I'm going to ask you all to read the letters, the words in, that are white, and I'll read the yellow ones. So you all can start by reading together verse 38. Here we go. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Thank you. You may be seated. Those are the words of Jesus Christ, our Lord. His Sermon on the Mount. So let's first of all compare and look at the law of Moses and the traditional interpretation. Go back to the Old Testament law of Moses here. Concerning an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it's found in Exodus chapter 21, verses 24 and 25, where it simply says, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If you want to go back and read the before and after that, but that's just basically talking about this. That's the way it was. You know, if somebody punches out your eye, you get you know, then that guy's eye needs to be taken, kept taken out. Um, now, that's not talking, and we'll get into this, but that's not talking about personal uh, revenge. That's just talking about the law, okay? It's not talking about personally. So if Myron comes to punch me in the eye, I'm not supposed to punch him back in the eye. That's not what it's saying here, okay? We'll get into that a little bit later. A parallel passage in Deuteronomy 19, verse 21 says, Your eyes shall not pity, 
Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Then we have some statements where laws for civil courts, where for the laws of the civil courts back then were to be able to apply them. And these are uh, verses. Notice carefully the instructions, how, how detailed instructions were given here in the law for the priests and the judges to, to decide and to follow through with this law. So again, in, in Deuteronomy, just earlier, few verses earlier in 15 through 20, it says this, one witness shall, notice, notice the detail, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the con controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days, and the judges shall make careful inquiry, and indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Then also in Exodus, uh, a few verses uh, just prior to what I read earlier in Exodus, uh, it says... If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according to the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life. So again, did you notice the detailed instructions here in these verses? It's spelled out very, very plainly and clearly. They were given to guide the priests in meriting out proper judgment. <clears throat> what did the scribes and the Pharisees do in the time of Christ when he was walking on the earth? <clears throat> they interpreted these statements so that as to justify personal retribution. They applied it by frequently taking matters of revenge into their own hands. And that's just what people do today, isn't it? A lot of people today take revenge into their own hands and it's not a pretty thing. Have you heard the statement? I don't get mad. I just get even. I don't think that statement is necessarily true to you. Because I think you do first get mad. I think it should be, I don't just get mad. I get even. One Sunday... The pastor was speaking on the subject of turning the other cheek. It so happened that a family with four rambunctious little boys was attending, and all of them seemed to be paying attention to the preacher, to the sermon, as he, met, as he pressed home the thought that we should never try to get even when someone hurts us. That afternoon, the youngest of the boys came into the house sobbing to his mother. He had kicked one of his older brothers, and his older brother had kicked him back. I'm sure none of you boys do that here, right? We'll go on. His mother tried to reason with him, and she said, I'm sorry that you're hurt, but you shouldn't go around kicking people. To which the little boy replied, but the preacher said that he isn't supposed to kick me back. Well, that's kind of the way of the scribes and Pharisees. They didn't go by how the actual law of the Old Testament was written and what it was meant to be. They took vengeance into their own hands. They thought it could be personal retribution. 
The law repeatedly forbade personal vengeance. And now we're going to get into, as I said, we're going to talk about it later. Now here it is. Let's take a look at the law again in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It says, I mean, this is very, very clear in the Old Testament law. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Proverbs 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. Proverbs 24, 29. Do not say, I will do to him just as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his word. Proverbs writer says, don't do that. Don't say that. So in both the Old Testament and in the New Testaments, <clears throat> excuse me, the matter of vengeance was to be left up to God and his duly appointed agent, the civil government of today. Paul speaks in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, and says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then speaking of the civil government, Paul says in Romans 13, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Well, then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So there really is a difference between the law and what we find in the New Testament in this regard. Personal vengeance has no place in the lives of those who are the children of God. Now, let's examine more closely and see what the proper response to evil should be. Jesus proclaimed two principles here. First, do not resist an evil person. He says in verse 39a of our text in Matthew 5, 39a, says, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. So not only should you not take vengeance into your hands, your own hands, don't even oppose or resist the evil person when the evil is being done. Okay. Secondly, and Jesus goes further, he says, respond to evil by doing good. Verses 39b and following down through 42. Jesus illustrates this principle with several examples, and we'll look at those individually right now. In verse 39b, talks about responding to physical abuse. It says, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. This may refer to offering the other cheek as an expression of love. And he is our primary example, is he not? On the cross, or as as he was being led to the cross, or you know, slapped in the face, and, and he took it. He didn't fight back. Our prime example to follow, our Lord. Then he goes on, responding to a civil suit by giving more than that, what that person is, is suing for. In verses 40 of our text, it says, If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. So today, we live in a very litigious society. People are suing each other right and left. Uh, 
it's kind of the rule of the day. And some of these lawsuits, very, very frivolous. You've heard of the frivolous lawsuits that are out there. They're just crazy. In Illinois, there was a man who sued Starbucks for misinterpreting, or excuse me, misrepresenting the amount of liquid contained in its cold drinks. The man alleged that Starbucks cheated customers by adding ice to cold beverages, thereby reducing the amount of liquid contained in the cups. And his suit sought damages for numerous offenses, including fraud, breach of express warranty, unjust enrichment, and violations of various state consumer protection laws. All because of a cup of cold coffee. Uh, a federal judge dismissed the case. The judge agreed with Starbucks's argument that a reasonable consumer uh, who orders an iced drink expects the drink to contain both liquid and ice. Imagine that. The Apostle Paul considers it wrong for Christians to be suing in court. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7, why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather yourselves be cheated? That's not the way people think today, is it? They don't want to accept when they've been wronged. They want to fight back and get that sweet revenge. Moving on. Verse 41. Jesus talks about responding to government oppression by offering to do more than what is being demanded of you. He says, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him two miles. There's a historical background to this example. You may know this. The people to whom he was speaking knew this. Uh, they were living in a country that was occupied by the Roman army. The Roman law said that it was also not part of the Jewish religious law. This is Roman law. They demanded that the Roman, that if there was a Roman soldier, and if he asked a citizen of that country to, of that occupied territory, to carry his big heavy pack that the soldiers carried, uh, that person was required by Roman law to carry that pack for that soldier one mile. Jesus said, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. So by law, again, anyone could be forced to go one mile, but no one could be forced to go two miles. But Jesus said, even if you don't have to go the second mile, do it anyway. <clears throat> going the second, the third, or the fourth miles, not just about submitting to authority of a soldier in an occupied country. It's about lovingly being willing to go way beyond what some people think would be reasonable or the right thing to do. Story is told about a man in Paris, France, whose wife had developed Alzheimer's disease. He was a very important businessman, a very busy man. Filled, his life was fulfilling. He was going about his work, being very busy, and his wife got this disease, and she started to deteriorate. And he said, I just could not put her into an institution. As she started to, excuse me, so I kept her home. I cared for her. I bathed her. I dressed her and fed her. And he went on to tell of how one night his wife woke him 
she came out of the fog that she was in for just a moment. And in her right mind, she said, darling, I just want to say thank you for all you've done for me. And then she kind of went back into the fog that she was living in. So we go the second mile when we love others, even when they're in a fog. Let's go on. Jesus next says in verse 42, give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So responding to those asking for help by giving them what they ask for. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul teaches pretty explicitly that if a person does not work, he should not eat. Christians are not to be known for their idleness, but for their work ethic. We have because we work. We work, we have a job, we have an income, and so we're able to have these things, that these blessings that we have. So when we have these things, then we can give to those in need. What about the beggars that you see or the people along the road with their cup out or they're holding their little sign or whatever? How do we treat them? People have varying opinions about that. Some people think you should just, sure, give everybody you see like that. You should give them what they need. Uh, I think we can use some Christian decisiveness and, uh, and uh, help that person in other ways. In other words, you've often heard this. You can give a man a, a fish and feed him for a day, or you can teach him how to fish and feed him for a lifetime. So if you just take a little time and give of your time instead of just your dollars, give of your time and interact with that person a little bit, okay? Maybe you can take him out for lunch, get him fill, it, get, fill his belly that way, but have the opportunity to challenge him maybe about why he is sitting there like that. I'm just, I'll stop with that. But there's different ways of dealing with those situations rather than just pitching a dollar at him and say, have a good day. Did you really help him? All right. Respond to those asking for help. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, he taught that there were different categories of widows. He said there are real widows and there are widows. He taught that while we must support a real widow, we did not support a widow who has her own resources or family who can care for her. I didn't make that up. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, it's spelled out very plainly. Read it for yourself, 1 Timothy 5. When Jesus said, give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you, I don't think he was saying to his followers that they're supposed to go into the bank and empty their bank accounts out, sell all their property, cash in all their investments, dump out all their wallets and give it out to everybody that comes down the road asking for, for money. I think Jesus was saying that if there's a need and you can help, do so. Help them. If you can't, you can't. But if you have the, the means and you're able to help them at that point, help them. It's not, it's not a matter of... Uh, discernment where you need to have the desire to do the right thing. You need to have the desire to do the right thing and not a desire to get out of having to help somebody. So in each of these cases that we just talked about, Jesus spelled out here in these, in these verses, each of these cases, the principle is the same. We are not 
to resist the person. Those who would mistreat us, those who would try to deprive of us of our possessions. Don't resist them, Jesus said. Instead, we need to respond in a positive manner. We should demonstrate love towards them in these different categories we looked at. Demonstrate love. Go beyond. We should go and do, give freely to them, more than what they're hoping to gain by force or by oppression or by man manipulation. Now, is this hard? Yeah, it can be. Is it opposite way of thinking of today's world and people in the world today? Absolutely, it's opposite. And it was back then. Jesus was giving a new, he was uh, teaching them to do it his way and not the way that of the day. Okay? Is it to be taken literally? Why not? Why not? I shared this little quote last time. I put it back again. What if Jesus really meant every word that he said here today? We have Old Testament examples I'm not going to read. I'll just briefly mention in, in uh, Genesis chapter 45, a very uh, interesting character, one of my favorite Old, Old Testament characters is, is Joseph. Joseph, in forgiving his brothers, you know how he was mistreated. They sold him into slavery. His father thought he died. And then he goes and, you know, the whole story. I'm not going to go through it, but Joseph forgave. Joseph did not seek personal retribution. What if he would have? You know, he could have killed his brothers when they came to see him or threw him in prison for life and never saw him again. Or he could have did all, he had power, but he forgave. David, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, was being hunted down like a dog by Saul, remember? Running through the caves and the mountains and countryside. And then it came nighttime one time and Saul lays down to sleep. David comes upon him could have put a spear right through the guy's heart or his temple, but he didn't. He respected God's anointed one, and he did not seek revenge. That's Old Testament, okay? Remember, the law didn't give permission for personal, personal vengeance. It had for the rulers of the day, for the, for the leaders in the government of the day could do those things eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but not personal vengeance, okay? So these two godly men in the Old Testament I just referred to were doing that. They did not seek personal vengeance in those cases there. So we also have uh, several New Testament examples. Jesus being our prime example, example that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2, 20 through 23. He says, for what credit is it if, when you were beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. That's our primary example, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's follow him. Acts chapter 7, we have the man Stephen. It says, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, and here it is, his love for them. Lord, do not charge them 
with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Godly man died for the cause of Christ. The Hebrew Christians in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains, and here we go, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. So they responded properly when they were plundered. We have very clear teaching from the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 19 through 20, 21. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will keep coals of fire on his head. Do not overcome by evil. Excuse me. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Paul says we're not to avenge ourselves. Seek to overcome evil with good. Are we to apply these principles unconditionally? In other words, must we decide who is worthy to receive this kind of treatment and maybe who is not worthy? I don't think Jesus give any indication that we're to use discretion in who we should help or who we should not help. As I said earlier, how we help them maybe comes into play, but we should help those in need if we have the means, if we're able to. Paul does not give, or excuse me, Paul does give some qualifying instructions in his epistles, um, and it applies to Christians. We have a responsibility to judge those in the church, leaving those outside to God. We hear that very familiar verse being quoted a lot by Christians today, judge not that you be not judged, and they love to hang on that verse. But did you realize that as Christians, we are to judge? We are to judge those within the church, not those without. And Paul talks about that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, and yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil, and I put that word inside person. Put away from yourselves that evil person who is claiming to name the name of Christ and claiming to be a part of the brotherhood. If he's involved in this evil things, these evil, evil things, we are to put him away and deal with him uh, in the right way, according to biblical principle and what Jesus tells us to do. So, we must be careful in how we apply these things, but we need to help 
others, those who are in need. That's pretty clear. I do find it inter interesting, the attitude of Christians in the second century AD, and I shared some of these over these messages uh, about the early fathers and what they had to say about some of these principles. So I'm gonna share with you again, three more. Hermas in 135 AD said this, do good and give liberally to all who are in need from the wages God gives you. Do not hesitate about to whom you should not give. Give to all, for God wishes gifts to be made to all out of his bounties. So this is what this man believed, lived close to the time of Christ. And this is what he believed and what he would have taught his followers. Irenaeus, 185 AD said, and he said to love not only your neighbors, but also our enemies, and to be givers and sharers, not only with the good, but also to be liberal givers towards those who take away our possessions. Clement of Alexandria said this, do not judge though, excuse me, do not judge who is worthy and who is unworthy, for it is possible for you to be mistaken in your opinion. In the uncertainty of ignorance, it is better to do good to the unworthy for the sake of the worthy, than by guarding against those who are less good not to encounter the good. For by sparring and trying to test those who are well-deserving or not, it is possible for you to neglect some who are loved by God, the penalty for which is the eternal punishment of fire. But by helping all those in need, in turn, you must assuredly find some who are able to save you before God. So do you see the attitude in these men, these early, early Christians? Uh, do you see their attitude? attitude of love, helping others, obeying what Jesus said here on the Sermon on the Mount, putting it into practice in our daily lives. They're written, these statements are written at a time when Christians were constantly being mistreated, abused, and manipulated by others. When these, when these fathers wrote these words, that time, there was a lot of persecution. There was people opposing Christians, okay? But this is how they were teaching the people to live, backing up what Jesus taught. The teachings of Jesus in this passage that we read today are admittedly challenging. It's opposed to the culture around us, the human nature around us. It's opposed to that, to that way of thinking. But we're called as Christians to be partakers of the divine nature. As it says in 2 Peter 1.4, be more like God than like men. As we will see in our next lesson, it is in order to be truly sons of your Father in heaven that Jesus teaches a standard of righteousness that far exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, that of most people today. So at the very least, let's expend as much energy as we can in seeing how we can apply these passages to our lives today. As spend as much time doing that as many do trying to explain it away and how it doesn't really, it's not really meant for today. There's people that try to explain that away. Let's not participate in that. Let's do our best to, and spend our time finding ways that we can apply Jesus's principles to our lives today. In conclusion, let's briefly summarize the teaching of Jesus concerning vengeance or virtue. One, we are not to resist evil. We need to remain meek and gentle and respond with love. Remembering that that person that we're working with 
interacting with is a soul that's never going to die. We are to respond by doing good in return. Go out of our way, heaping coals of fire on their head. Go that second mile. Go buy a burger for him at Burger King instead of just pitching a buck at him. Go out of your way. We may never face the exact situations that Jesus used to illustrate today, these situations. We may not be told by a soldier to carry a pack, but we can apply it to our lives. How people treat us at work, how people treat us in the communities we live in, in our own families, or even as brothers and sisters, how we interact with each other, that we not seek vengeance on each other, but we love each other. Remember this, Jesus said that we are, would be hated because we are following him. So in, 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 in living out these principles, they're, they're going to be, they're going to be weird. This is, it's just not normal today, natural today, I should say, for when people see, see us responding in this way, it's, it's not natural. And sometimes people will hate us for it. Jesus said that may happen. Okay. So let's not be surprised at that. Whenever we are mistreated, take the challenge to see how you might overcome evil with good. And in doing so, your righteousness will exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we come to you this morning, thanking you for these words of scripture, words from our Lord Jesus Christ there in the Sermon on the Mount. Father, some of these things seem difficult to act out or to live out in a world we live in. Sometimes we are mistreated and it's too easy sometimes for us to backlash or to have even start with having bad thoughts in our hearts. Help us, Father, to make the right choices, to, to throw those thoughts out and to have replaced those thoughts with thoughts of love and care and to, to just look at the person who we're interacting with with a heart of love, realizing that you love them and we need to as well. Father, we, we ask for your strength by the power of the Holy Spirit to live above this world and to live in honor, honoring and praising you and uh, living, living our lives sold out to you. Father, I ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.